And welcome back, everyone, to yet another edition of Going for Two, presented by our dear friends at Home Field Apparel. I am your host, Matt Brown. I run the Extra Points newsletter. You can find that at extrapointsmb.com. I am joined by Brian Fisher here on kind of a garbage Thursday afternoon, uh, morose, uh, steely gray sky, very big tent outside right now. Um, excited to talk to you here as we get everybody ready for the weekend. Uh, Brian, I know you've had some uh, exciting conversations and that uh, we want to get to here. And I think we also want to talk through maybe a couple of the things I've been doing on EP, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, in addition to all the, the fun stuff that we've been doing, actually, uh, before we jumped on here to, to record this this here podcast, was was talking about Kansas football, which is not something I, I would have said uh, come, come early October. But uh, you know what? Uh, crazy things going on in college athletics nowadays. I, I'm really happy for them. It's, it's, it's funny to kind of get an idea for how wild this is. Like, uh, we had a, an editorial meeting with Extra Points earlier today with, like, with, uh, I was talking to our publisher and some of our other staffers about some travel for Extra Points in November. And, like, uh, and the, 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 the thought was expressed, which has never been expressed in my professional career of, well, we probably shouldn't bother going to Kansas because everybody else is going to be at Kansas writing a Kansas story. And we're sick. We don't want Jayhawks football to be overexposed. I, I had one up on, on FoxSports.com this week because uh, I talked with Lance Leipold earlier this week. So you yeah, did? I was I was one of them. I, I, I've been part of that uh, crowd that is, uh, I, although I'm not going to, to Lawrence this weekend, but uh, FS1 has the game and it, it, it's going to be a fun one. I, I think that, uh, you know, the Big 12 in, in general has been kind of crazy. And uh, this this could be a bit of a separation Saturday if you want to kind of term it that if, if very much of an uh, illiterate uh, nature uh, for, for this, this college football weekend. I think certainly within the... SEC and the Big 12, I think you're right, right? There's there's a, a couple of either ranked matchups or matchups from people that we're not exactly sure how good they are, and eventually the standings say you are what you are. Um, but for this show, before, uh, rather than digging into the Big 12 or the ACC or the Big 10, uh, I thought we could take a couple minutes here to talk about stuff that's at a very different level uh, than those things and kind of build our way back up. Because earlier this week on Extra Points, I wrote a story checking in on the reclassification efforts of a couple of Division II programs. Um, obviously, the gigantic elephant in the room for any kind of conference realignment is with the Big Ten. And with, will the Big Ten make a run at adding some Pac-12 teams or maybe ACC teams? And uh, without knowing for certain what the, the Big Ten is going to do, that kind of paralyzes what the Pac-12 might do. It paralyzes what the Mountain West might do. It changes the, the, the calculus for several not all, but several FCS conferences as well. But there's also parallel conversations, a parallel track of realignment that has really nothing to do with what happens within the Big Ten because of how disruptive the last realignment cycle was. You still have several other low and mid-major leagues that are looking to solidify their membership, and the best place to do that is through Division II institutions. And if you're a Division II school right now, this is a really weird time to bump up. Um We've talked, you and I have talked about this before on the show, and we've both written and, and done interviews about it. But it's hard to jump to Division One if you don't know exactly what Division One means, or more importantly, how much that's going to cost um, in the next nine months. So, on one hand, you would, might expect, hey, with the transformation committee and with some new requirements for maybe sports sponsorship or staff uh, staffing ratios or, or various spending, maybe you don't want to commit to it. But also, Conference invitations don't come by every day. 
And if you happen to be in a geography in a position where there's an opening in your geography and you've thought about maybe doing this once in the last decade, by God, you kind of have to do it now. So there's a few schools that I'm aware of that are at various points of that conversation. One of them, uh, Lemoyne College, uh, lacrosse superpower at the Division II level, I believe. They're in Syracuse, uh, a city that I believe does not have a college program at the moment. So that's uncharted territory for, for them. Pretty small school. Um, they have uh, are, are still evaluating that process. It's, it hasn't been a secret that they were considering it. Uh, the re- most recent update I had is that their, uh, their president, their athletic director, their staff had shared some other updates. It's leaning towards that way. Um, they still have to, we have this committee that has to provide recommendations, but what we're saying in philanthropy and what we're saying to other internal people is this is the path we would prefer to go and we have to make sure we get all of our ducks in a row before we do that. My educated guess at this point is that they are more likely to join the NEC than the MAAC, the MAC, MAC, the other, uh, one of the other Northeastern conferences, Uh, although they're talking to both of them. Uh, Part of that is because the MAC would like to look at geographies outside of upstate New York. Part of that is also they've been historically reticent to add reclassifying programs. And also, they don't have a commissioner right now. That's true. Which tends to be uh, surprisingly not a requirement <laughs> for, for this sort of thing, but it does help. Um, and, and they're not expected to have somebody you know, ready to replace Rich in like the next two weeks or anything. So you can read about that. And then, do you know the other one? Well, I, I was just going to follow up on the, on the one yeah. thing. So I feel like we've been talking about uh, just like who could end up fitting in the NEC for like, what, two years now? I, I don't know how long yeah, we've... I think, not I as long as the show's been going pretty, on. Pretty much, yeah. And so, uh, you know, what, whatever gets us some more dolphins in... in I, I'm pretty <laughs> sure that's Lemoyne's mascot is the that's dolphins. Right. Uh, so uh, any, anytime we can get that in there. And, and I, I think, it, you know, it is funny because you, know, you, you joke about, about the, uh, Syracuse and uh, John Wildhack, who uh, you just interviewed at, at the mm-hmm. Lead One meetings, uh, Sorry, that interview you up on, on uh, collegiate sports connect I saw him talking about uh, you know how, how they wanted to kind of expand their fan base you know and yeah, outside to, of syracuse to rochester, to rochester right yeah, yeah. and Buffalo. then uh, you know so so it's an interesting kind of conflict between here's what the you know the, the certainly the, the power five institution in that area is doing and then you have somebody else coming up and and i think it can kind of dovetail into our secondary story with uh UND because you know that that's another program that faces a lot of you know regional competition and uh you know the, their move up is, is going to be one track as well uh, it's, it's true. And, and both Lemoyne and UND are entertaining reclassifying to D1 for one shared reason. Part of that is instability at Division II. Um, Lemoyne is a member of the, I want to say the NE10 right now. There's because Merrimack has left and Long Island has left and Stonehill has left. And the caliber of athletic departments to replace those is not exactly the same. That might inspire, uh, not might, I know it's inspired other, other Division II teams in that region to have conversations, right? New Haven very has very much telegraphed that they're also uh, in, in this in this boat as well. So if you're like, well, if my league might change a lot, and, it, and at this level, it's not just the competition of the league, it's also the geography. So as people at Lemoyne have explained to me, like, hey, we want to be in a place where we can hold alumni events, we can hold development events in places where our alumni live. And our alumni, they live in upstate New York, they live in Syracuse, but they also live in New York City. They also live in Boston. They also live in Connecticut. And we want to make sure that we can be around. They live in New Jersey. And and if we can do an event connected to a basketball game, that helps us raise money. 
rather than going to places where our guys may, may not be. They might not be in New Hampshire. They might not be in, in other parts of, of, uh, of New England. That's a similar situation for UIndy, where their league has changed quite a bit, and now it's not really very much in Indiana anymore. Um, and uh, the, the, there's a thinking, hey, we, maybe we want to be around other schools that we have some history with, uh, that have shared ideas. And that's the the GVAC or G, the 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 league where they are right now is not necessarily that same place. I'll have to I'll, we'll fix it in post. We won't fix it in post. Um, so they are considering reclassifying to Division One. I. I am told the conference that is most interested in them is the Ohio Valley Conference. That is uh, looked to also add other teams in the Midwest. They added Southern Indiana, but uh, unlike Lemoyne, UND doesn't have an athletic director right now. Their AD resigned a couple of weeks ago. They also don't have a permanent university president. Now, you don't necessarily have to have those things to change conferences or to reclassify. I think Lamar moved without having either of those. Um, not from the classification levels, but conferences. And sometimes that does happen. But uh, it's harder to do. You would prefer to have more permanent leadership in place to make those kind of decisions. And as I understand it, from talking to people there and talking to some other consultants and people that work in Division II, the, their board said, the Ohio Valley is still going to be interested in us in six months. And maybe we could take this time, maybe we hire some more permanent people and we can at least study what this would mean for our enrollment, what it would mean for DEI, what it would mean for travel. We don't have to make this decision immediately. And so that's why they are, to use an Iowa term, they're going to punt and we'll reevaluate this decision later. But I wouldn't want people to look at that and think UND's not, like they've closed the door on that. That, to what I have been told, would not be accurate. They are just trying to collect more information. Well, I mean, and, and you would, would know more than anything. Like this is a lengthy process, right? You know, in terms of collecting that information, getting your boosters all on board with with the you know the, the amount of fundraising it takes to, to make the jump. And um, yeah, I think well, you mentioned Lamar there earlier. I think that was certainly a, a school, and, and maybe a, you, you had a stronger booster culture there that that could yeah. have shepherded things along. Versus probably not quite the the case there at UND. So, um, but but just in, interesting in, in terms of the dichotomy, especially. Knowing that there's going to be some membership requirements and membership changes uh, at, at the D1 level that uh, we should have by the end of the month, knock on wood. Hopefully that does not get pushed back a week or two, but um, that is still the the aim of the transformation committee is to kind of let those out. Because, uh, uh, you know, not just for, for teams that want to move up from the Division Two level need to know about that, but certainly if you're on the kind of cut barely cutting it at the D1 level, you want to know ultimately what what what, what it's going to take to remain in the, in the division. And, um, you know, there's expected yeah. to be certainly some kind of transition period to where you can, if you need to hire five athletic trainers to make sure your your ratios are, are okay, you can still do that. But uh, I think everybody understands that uh, Division One itself, it's undergoing some some big transformational changes and how big they are, I, I think is still, still still to be left determined. But uh, I, I think for, for some of those schools, they, they at least want to know what, what, it, what it's going to take. Unquestionably. And uh, we, we, we've had, it's pretty uncommon, but we have had in our lifetime Examples of schools that begin that process and maybe even get pretty far along in the process and realize, oh my gosh, this costs way more than we thought it would. Or that things are more complicated than they thought they were. I mean, you end up with a, a Winston-Salem State kind of situation or a Birmingham Southern, I think, was was another one that was like up for a minute and then, or a Savannah State, right? Up and, and then back down. Um, it's interesting. I don't think we've gotten nearly as many very concrete leaks about membership requirements as we have about other things that the Transformation Committee has decided. I think very broadly, 
you and I have heard similar things about, hey, you are likely going to need to spend more on staffing. You are likely going to need to spend more related to the student experience than you were before. Um, and there was some talk before about sport requirement, the sport requirement number changing. Maybe that happens. Maybe it doesn't. I haven't gotten the feeling that that's as big of an issue as maybe we, we thought it was a year ago. But in terms of anything else that's actually concrete, that's hard. And so like, I've talked to some ADs that are at schools that we might categorize as being bubbleish, right? Like people that want to stay in Division One but have athletic budgets under $30 million. And like what a couple of them have told me is we're just writing in, we need another million and a half next year and we're going to ramp up from there just for people we don't need we don't know who we need to hire yet but we think we're going to need to hire but that's no way to do budgeting um so once there is more clarity on that front independent of these two particular decisions i think that that's going to change the calculus for other division two schools and i am aware of one other school that is now seriously considering a reclassification that hasn't been on anybody's hot board yet. That's like, they're not in the Northeast. They're not in the the, the GMAC. They're not in the, the Midwest part of the of the Division II landscape, the different part of the country. I would imagine they're gonna have some different conversations, not just from the two to the one level, but for at least a handful of schools, the Division One to the one back to Division Two. I don't think that number is going to be very big, but if you are a Maryland Eastern Shore, if you're a Presbyterian, if you're Chicago State, if you're somebody at the very, very bottom, now would be the time to have some bigger conversations, I think. Absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, speaking to the, the transitional period, like, the, the, you know, talking about school budgets and stuff, you know, usually that, that gets done in July and then you're kind of sitting back and then you're you're revisiting it, you know, at the beginning of next year. And so uh, whether you're a university president or you're an athletic director, you you want some clarity on those on these things before you go into that process. And it's not just about raising money. You know, sometimes this will involve student fa- student uh, fee hikes, you know, in, yep. in order to pay for a lot of it. Well, in order to get that, you have to go, go through some student government sometimes. You have to sometimes, uh, you know, state legislature and, and all those various things. So, like, there's, there's some higher ed issues at play when it comes to raising money for some of those schools kind of on the, the cutting line, if you will. So going to be interesting. I, I, I don't think um, I, I just get a sense in, in talking to people, even though uh, the transformation committee doing a very good job in terms of uh, keeping those those potential changes in numbers, at least uh, close to their vest. I, I, I don't get a sense that we're, we're going to come out of this process and say, wow, that was truly transformational. I, I think it's just a little bit more of an incremental change that uh, could could make some differences, especially for the student athletes in the long term. Yeah, the um, I kind of get the idea, too, that we're looking at a um, sanding of the edges kind of transformation to the extent that anything truly transformational happens. It's going to be at a smaller scale uh, or pushed from outside entities rather than the NCAA uh, itself. Um, I, there's one other part of the of the realignment conversation I, I think I, I did want to just very briefly talk about, and then we can actually maybe shift into something a little bit more transformational-ish. Um, and that was the last stuff I had been hearing about the Big Ten, right? And I want to be use my words carefully. The first thing I'll say is, friends, um, you should read the story. You can read the story at extrapointsmb.com. Uh, and in doubt, you should consult what I have written more than what I might say on a podcast where I am speaking more informally uh, than I might be when I'm writing and triple and, and, and I'm checking something a bunch of different times. That being said, the, the general gist here is um, I do not get the feeling from talking to people with direct knowledge in Rosemont and in Chicago that even now that there's complete uniformity about what, what to do next. 
And part of that stems from you have a group of people. And when I say people, I'm talking about presidents, athletic directors, and, and senior Big Ten staffers. Like these are the whole constituencies here, right? You have some that would like to move to 20 teams. They feel that that would provide the most stability, that that would elevate the Big Ten, that that would give them the resources they need to function no matter what college sports looks like moving forward. You have a group of people that would like to get to 20 only if they the broadcast television revenue does not go down at all. And then you have a group that, quite frankly, doesn't really want to expand at all, or at least would like to see what things are like at 16, because you already make a lot of money, and moving from 16 to 20 also carries with it political costs, not just political costs within college athletics and administrators and people, but also in state houses like we've seen here with UCLA and potentially um, within the federal government, if this is something that might attract other lawmakers that would like to grandstand for for a little while. So there's a bunch of, a lot of things that are at play here besides just maximizing television. The other thing that I have heard from, again, people with, with direct knowledge here is the idea that the Big Ten is primarily motivated to expand to get access to the fourth television window and bring on another partner. It's a little bit overstated. And what uh, not to say that it doesn't exist, that, that that is a factor and that would in, increase the, the TV value. What I have been told is even with that factored in, the math does not favor a way for Stanford or Cal to be additive. The only way that happens is if Cal and Stanford agree to take much less money. Um, even with another window, you just they don't there's no you're, you don't have the fan support you don't have the athletic pedigree you don't have the market you don't have the other things that are necessary to elevate that with Oregon and Washington I'm told that's not the case not a big increase but you know, relatively stable other combinations of teams could be something different so that's it right and I am trying not to get super caught up in the he said she said Bob Thompson says this unnamed Big Twelve AD says this you know this search firm says this about the back and forth between the Pac-12 and the Big 12. Um, respectfully, I, I don't think any of this stuff matters that much. What matters is if the Big Ten's going to expand, the kind of PPU measuring contest between Texas and California about either of these two conferences is kind of moot. Cal and Oregon are going to leave and, and and maybe anybody else. If they don't, I don't I still don't have any reason to believe that either of those leagues poaches anybody else. And then you kind of rebuild and whatever the contract is, whatever the contract is. And I would, I wish I had something more extremely concrete. I have been hesitant to share anything that I am not getting from somebody who is like capital T or you're absolutely like in the know. You know what I mean? Just because it's hard to do this kind of reporting because even people that are industry experts or analysts, they're getting a third hand or maybe they have a business reason for kind of getting a particular narrative out there. And it's hard to separate what is actually happening versus the bullshit. I think it also underscores that uh, there's not a lot of uh, marquee chess pieces back out on the board, right? You know, like Texas yeah. and Oklahoma, you know, you, everybody's going to take them. You know, USC, UCLA, the 250 NCAA titles, you know, some of the biggest uh, football and basketball brand names in, in uh, the West Coast. You, you're going to take those type of schools. You know, everybody else, uh, a little bit less so. Not to, not to say they're not valuable. I'm not saying that uh, Oregon fans. I'm not saying that Washington fans. Like there's, you know, true value in, in those universities, those markets, those team brains, um, especially lately. You know, and, and I think there's complicating all of this factor is the, the college football playoff expansion. Revenue sharing is, is, is not necessarily changing as uh, this, this current contract. 
But that is going to be a big, big point of contention as yeah. we move beyond you know 2025 and into 2026. And so um, yeah, I think there's a lot of schools out there saying, you know what, uh, maybe it just makes a little bit more sense too to to stay put. Let's sit this round out. Let's uh, let's look ahead. Yeah, we're we're going to be down. Uh, maybe maybe it's ten fifteen million dollars a year in terms of that that media rights revenue, but maybe we can make that up if we end up making the college football playoff. Uh, some unequal revenue sharing potentially coming out of that. Um, yep. You know, it, it, there's there's a lot of options on 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 the table, and I think from the Big Ten perspective, would they love to kind of knock this out and and be done with it, and uh, don't have to worry about it for another twenty years? Sure, but I, I don't think the current climate necessarily is uh, building towards that because could still happen. Certainly, I, I think that's that's uh, one truism that we've learned these last couple of years. Anything can happen, but. Um, you know, I, I think it does kind of, as, as you reported, just is, is kind of not going that direction necessarily right now. Right this very second. I think the last thing I would say to my message board, subreddit, Twitter people who I, I talk to you with love in my heart. I think you will err if you fall down a big rabbit hole of trying to break down market sizes and, and figure out exactly what the valuation is for this, that, or the other. Because even if you can get a decent estimate of that, which the more I talk to people that, that work in these consultancies, the more it's like it really is not something a layman can ballpark because the these valuations depend way more on who's doing the buying than what the inventory is itself. But if you go down that road, I'm telling you, that is not the only variable at play. And the other stuff are not things you can really game out on a napkin necessarily, especially when you start talking about university presidents and really localized political uh, situations. And I say that as somebody who does this for a living, I don't feel comfortable speculating about most of these places. So, I mean, if you guys want to, go for it. Just that, like, uh, I, your confidence interval <laughs> should be lower, I think, when we're talking about this kind of stuff. You know what you can be confident in, though, Brian? Excellent Deals and excellent designs from our good friends at Home Field Apparel, the good brand also in Indianapolis. They make t-shirts, they make hoodies, they make sweatshirts of your favorite uh, college brands. We're using their vintage iconography, their vintage logos that are guaranteed to make whatever you're putting on be a conversation starter and out you as a dignified, refined consumer of the good life in college athletics. Um, I'm not a Nebraska fan by any stretch of the imagination, although I, I, I like Lincoln just fine. But I do like this Nebraska shirt. It says bug eaters, which is funny because people don't eat bugs. Uh, and we got the beautiful Washington Huskies. Oh, yeah. Uh, for, for Brian here. Uh, this is, look, we said this every week. This is most of the stuff that we wear. We've put out bids and, and reached out to people that do advertising for formal wear. And if somebody that makes sports jackets or ties or Oxford shirts wants to sponsor us, I'll be happy to wear those. Um, but these are more comfortable. And we have a bunch of the home field things anyway. We have a bunch of the home field things anyway, even if they weren't paying us to talk about them because we really like them. You can get home field stuff too, showcasing perhaps the newest Wyoming uh, collection, which not for me, but definitely probably for uh, the rest of the Come on now. You uh, don't want a uh, cowboy golfing? Come on. I, my, I, I, the, the root and toot and brown shirt is pretty great. It, it, right there's 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 excellent stuff there just maybe not for me personally but for many of you it probably is for you oh you can get that using promo code extra points um and save 15 percent off that order at homefieldapparel.com um we've talked a lot about transformation committee stuff and it's one thing to hear me uh speculate over some of the things that i've heard First, second, and sometimes third hand uh, over, over where this committee is going. Be another thing to talk to somebody who's in the room. So I thought maybe here for the rest of this show, Brian, I, why don't we turn things over to you? 
because you've had an opportunity to talk to somebody who very clearly knows exactly what these what's happening in these conversations, right? Yeah, I had a chance to uh, last week uh, talk for, for Collegiate Sports Connect, uh, talk, talk with uh, Baylor University President Linda Livingstone. She's the chair of the Board of Governors at the NCAA. There is, uh, you might have heard, they're, they're searching for, for Mark Emmert's replacement. Um, that process expected to kind of, uh, let's, let's say, accelerate over these next uh, six weeks to, to two months. And, uh, you know, the end goal would be to have somebody in place by the, um, you know, January, uh, early January NCA convention. We'll see if that ends up happening, but uh, had, had a chance to sit down with, with Linda, kind of ask her about that, that process and, and the NCA transformation. So uh, yeah, we're going get, to get into it with an interview with her. And, and I think it's, it's going to be insightful. And, and this is, again, some of the content that you can get on Collegiate Sports Connect on a, on a regular basis. We're, we're talking about AD searches. We're talking about, um, you know, things that are relevant to the industry. So if you're not, not only if you're in it or you're interested in college athletics, it's, it's a great place to be. We're, we're almost, uh, we're, we should, by the time this episode posts, we'll be over 6,000 users uh, for it, which is a, a pretty good thing for, for less than a, being a year old. So uh, we're, we're excited about the kind of content that we are pumping out. And this interview is, is a good reason why. I don't think I had 6,000 users for extra points after one year. Um, and this is free. And extra points wasn't. So if you are interested in these original conversations, I I also have a ton of AD interviews on there. I think just about everything from lead one has been uploaded. So I've talked, I mean, there's probably like eight uh, AD interviews on there. I would implore all of you to sign up because it doesn't cost you any money. Um, from there, Brian and I will be, we'll be in touch with you next week. You know where to find us and everything will be in your feeds. But for now, let's turn the time, excuse me, turn the time over to somebody who definitely knows more than I do. Brian Fisher here for D1 Ticker with a special edition of Search Insights for you today. I'm joined right now by Dr. Linda Livingstone, the Baylor University president and, of course, the chair of the NCAA Board of Governors. Linda, thank you so much for joining us. Well, I'm happy to be with you, Brian. I appreciate the time today. Absolutely. Well, we got a lot to get into, and, and so we, we can jump right into it. But uh, the reason why we wanted to have you on is, of course, the search for Mark Emmert's successor is, is certainly underway. I'm curious, as, as your position as board chair, could you maybe give the membership a, a little bit of an update in terms of what the process is going to look like and, and what kind of time frame everybody is, is kind of looking for at, at this point? Yeah, happy to do that. So uh, the search committee uh, met for the first time uh, just a few weeks ago, and we'd the search firm, Turnkey ZRG, had prior to that been involved in uh, a lot of listening sessions. They did listening sessions with uh, across uh, the NCAA membership with all different types of groups and individuals to really get feedback on uh, where they thought uh, the challenges and opportunities were and to really help build a position description. And uh, so that was kind of the first phase. And I think they did like 79 listening sessions with over 300 people. They then did a survey <clears throat> to follow that so we could get beyond the qualitative information that came out of those listening sessions. Uh, they could get some more quantitative uh, information. And so that was kind of part of what we reviewed as a search committee at that first meeting. They're also continuing some conversations some, with some uh, additional groups kind of uh, subsequent to that, as we continue this process, some in higher ed, some in professional sports, some in kind of media and entertainment, again, to get a bit broader perspective from uh, some that aren't quite as intimately involved on a daily basis in, in kind of the world we live in, in higher education and collegiate athletics. And so the, the search committee then met 
and put together the position description, which has been shared and posted out there. And so we hope everybody's looking at that and, and thinking about uh, good potential candidates. So uh, that's kind of the stage we're at now. We are now beginning to compile uh, a pool of candidates for the process. We'll be uh, discussing those and reviewing those over the next several months as we move towards uh, identifying semifinalists and then finalists for interviews. And then, you know, our goal is to be done and, and have somebody named uh, hopefully early in the new year. Of course, we would love to have somebody by the time we get to the convention in January, but uh, we aren't going to have any arbitrary deadlines because we just want to make sure we do this really well, get the right person. And uh, while we want to be efficient, we also want to take the time we need to get um, a great uh, person in that role to lead us forward. I mean, you're you're no stranger to to hiring executives. You, you worked with with Turnkey uh, a bit earlier in, in the search to replace Bob Bowlesby, and that landed with with Brent Yormark as the new Big Twelve commissioner. Has that kind of helped your, your approach to this process? And and even though it might be a different role, you at least have some experience not only working with Turnkey, but but going through this type of type of search. Well, I think that's been extremely helpful to me in this process. As you said, I had the experience of working with Turnkey. So you kind of know the players and you know their process, you know, kind of how they work. And we worked well together along with uh, the other two members of the executive committee of the board of the Big 12 through that search and felt like we obviously ended up with a great candidate. We're thrilled with uh, with Commissioner Yormark and, and what he's doing for the conference. And then as you go through that process for a conference commission, while the issues can be different at the conference level, uh, they are still all about college athletics and what's going to be the future and how do we best position ourselves. And so this kind of raises it to the next level on kind of a national scale and frankly, not just about one conference, but about all the conferences across all of the divisions. So it becomes even more complex, more diverse in terms of what the issues are that the individual is going to deal with. But I do think that experience at the Big 12 was very valuable to me in helping think about how we want to conduct this search, how we'll work with turnkey, and then, frankly, the types of uh, people we might want to look at and the kinds of skill sets we're going to need uh, as we go through this process. Well, speaking of types of people, the, the past two full-time uh, NCAA presidents have, have been university presidents in, in, in a previous life. Uh, all, all but one ha has been a white man. How, how important is it to have a diverse uh, group of candidates with, with a diverse set of backgrounds as well? Well, I think if you read the position description that we put out, you will see that there's a really broad set of, of uh, skills that we would that we're talking about and looking for. And we think that those could come from any number of uh, industries or or types of organizations. And so, you know, we, we need a really strong leader that can move us forward in a very complex environment. And so, uh, you know, Higher education has certainly been where the last couple have come from, but that doesn't mean that's where they need to come from now. We want to really uh, reach broadly to determine uh, where that person could come from and what kind of industry or background might be uh, most appropriate to lead us forward. You're, you're a former student athlete, and I'm sure that uh, kind of colors you, your your perspective in, in terms of the search a little bit differently. Uh, how, how does that that help you uh, approach this position? And, and really, what kind of role will other student athletes have in this process? Well, I think being a former student athlete, I my husband was also a student athlete. I have a daughter who was a student athlete, and now she's a coach. So I think the fact that you've been so deeply embedded in that part of the world for your whole life, and then that combined with my academic experience, 
uh, does help me kind of understand, one, the complexities of what's going on in college athletics, uh, how that fits into the academic enterprise, because at the end of the day, we are academic enterprises, and our athletics programs need to support and uh, expand that, and, and that's a, a huge value uh, within the NCAA is the academic element of our student-athletes' experiences. And so clearly the fact that I've had that experience, have family members that have had it, um, I think gives me a, a bit of a better sin, maybe a little bit closer to the ground on what's going on uh, within the athletic world uh, that can be very, very helpful to this process. And now in that lengthy job description, you, you do list revenue growth and, and success tied to that. I, I know uh, the obviously the contract with ESPN is down the road for, for all the championships beyond men's basketball is, is coming up uh, probably sooner than, than everybody expects it to. Um, when you look at kind of revenue growth, are, are you talking about just media rights or are you talking about in, in other areas that uh, this person might have, have to have expertise in? We think that uh, we will want someone in this in this position, or frankly, someone who can build a team. It's one person can't do everything that you need to have done in a complex organization like the NCAA. So either themselves have the skill set or build a team around them that can really think more broadly and more creatively about where might there be revenue growth opportunities uh, within the NCAA. Uh, not just with one or two sports, but across sports, not just in one division, but across all of the divisions and and beyond media rights with licensing. And there's so many different ways. If you look at what's going on in pro sports, if you even look at what's going on in some of the collegiate conferences now and even on our own campuses, uh, where are those opportunities? How do you need to think about that with the NCA? Uh, we clearly have some unique assets in the NCAA that no you don't have anywhere else. And how do you best take advantage of those to monetize them in ways that really helps the, the member schools to accomplish their missions uh, and to support their student athletes? And I think that's the other piece of it is, you know, at the heart and soul of what we do, it's our student athletes. And we need to make sure that we're supporting them in the right ways. We're creating the right environment for them. And then we're allocating our resources in ways that help them to be the most successful they can be, both as athletes, but also as students and as developing young people who are going to contribute to society over the long run. Now, now based on the, that timeline you mentioned earlier, obviously you're, the new president is going to be dealing with a new Congress and, and another new election cycle after that. Uh, you, you've been active in, in governmental re relations. How important is it to kind of make some headway uh, with, with the new president in terms of relations, not just with Congress, but uh, kind of beyond that uh, in, in the broader scope with the government? Well, we absolutely believe that uh, really building those relationships with Congress, uh, certainly at the federal level, but I think there's work at, at state levels in some cases as well, is going to be really important because we know with the the challenges and opportunities fa facing college athletics, the questions around antitrust, the questions around employment, uh, ongoing uh, opportunities around Title IX, all of which are uh, governed a lot at the federal level, in addition to at the state level, someone in this role, again, needs to understand that. They need to be able to build those relationships. They need to be able to build a team that can work uh, with those in, in positions in Congress uh, to really help us navigate all of this in a way that I think retains the integrity of collegiate athletics and finds the best ways we can to support our student athletes as we go forward. 
There's uh, obviously a lot of, of legal cases against the NCAA. It's not listed in, in the job description of requiring a, a law degree, though. I think that w- would probably be helpful given the, the number of challenges uh, kind of facing the organization right now. Another EEOC complaint. Uh, you know, h- how much will the new president kind of be tasked with, with kind of charting a new course uh, legally for the NCAA and, and dealing with a lot of these issues, especially as they relate to student athletes, possibly or, or potentially even becoming employees? Yeah. Well, in any major organization, whether it's our universities, companies, or others, and certainly the NCA is, is not uh, immune from that, uh, we have to be very attentive to uh, the legal environment that we're in, the legal risks that we face, and, and determine how best to navigate those in ways that help us to uh, uh, to fulfill our mission as organizations, but to, and to do it in a way that uh, helps uh gives us, you know, good fiduciary responsibility with our organization, but then also takes care of the people within the organization. For the NCA, that's not just the employees, it's also our student athletes, the coaches and others that are involved. So the legal piece of it is going to be critically important going forward for the NCAA, really as it is for any organization. But the individual in this role is going to have to be very attentive to that, is going to have to work well with the those folks from a legal perspective, but also, you know, potentially congressional help on some of the issues that might be most valuable to help us uh, navigate some of this going forward. Because many of these issues that we're dealing with, when you talk about employment, antitrust, Title IX, they don't always lead you in the same direction. And they can be at conflict with one another as you're trying to figure out how to create a model uh, for the future of college athletics that uh, is a healthy path forward for our institutions and for our student athletes. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that because, you know, there has been some complaints out there between coaches and ADs about maybe a lack of trust, you know, nationally and certainly maybe even a lack of leadership. You listed in the job description, visionary servant leader. I'm curious if you can maybe kind of compound that and how important it will be to kind of rebuild trust, not only with the national office and the schools, but really getting everybody kind of on the same page and moving in the right same direction, I guess. Well, it is one of the qualities that we've talked a lot about in this process, and that frankly we've heard a lot about, is there has been a breakdown in trust, some rightly, maybe some not so legitimate, but it's there, and it's something we have to deal with in the NCAA, and so it will be really important for this individual to be respected, to gain the trust of those inside and outside, as you say, of the NCAA, because we only make progress on these really hard, complex Uh, national issues, if there's kind of trust in the people in the process and trust in the organization in the process that is really trying to do what's in the best interest of our our student athletes and and collegiate athletics broadly. And so uh, the credibility of the person, their ability to to build relationships and gain trust is going to be, I think, critically important uh, to the success of not just this individual, but the NCAA more broadly as we go forward. I mean, how much did you guys, uh, as, as you're going through this process, have, have even thought broadly about just kind of this this role? I know you guys listed it in, in the description, a lot of the things that you're considering, but, uh, you know, Mark Emmert's job ha- has changed over the decade plus that, that he's been in it. It's going to change further, I, I would imagine, with uh, just all that's going on in college athletics. Is, is the new person going to have, you know, enough power to, to kind of have some 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 leeway to to create some headwinds for the NCAA? Or, or have you guys been thinking about just kind of how the role itself has, has is going to change in the future? Well, I think that's an ongoing conversation, particularly as we see what comes out of the Division One Transformation Committee and, and what ends up residing, whether it's at the NCA versus 
at the division one versus at conferences or at schools. I think that will help shape the thinking about this position. And I do think that as a person in this role builds credibility, builds trust, um, exhibits expertise in areas that really matter, that gives them a, a lot of uh, influence to get things done and to move the institution forward. And so um, we, I think there's tremendous opportunity for a person coming into this role, especially somebody that wants to take on a big challenge and wants to really make a difference in an area that really matters and matters on a very national scale for uh, tens of thousands of young people in the country and for, you know, 1100 institutions. So, um, you know, there's a lot of people out there that it could be a tremendous opportunity for to make a big difference in an area that can have a huge influence in this country. Well, you bring up the the transformation committee. Uh, you're, you're of course a, a member. There are a lot of important work already already done on, on fronts like you know in, enforcement and the infractions process. But uh, as, as somebody told me the other day, now the real work has has begun on on things like championships, access, and sports sponsorship. I, I'm curious if you can maybe give us an update of, of where we're at on, on that and how much will will this kind of work be done for the new president to to kind of I guess uh, put out of mind a little bit. Right. Well, and and I was in a conversation uh, earlier this week, and one of the comments I made is. I think we have to recognize that transformation in NCAA, not just Division One, but NCAA more broadly, doesn't end when we get through this transformation committee process and, and the processes that are going on in Division uh, Two and Three as well. I think there's going to have to be ongoing change and transformation in the NCA in the months and years ahead, sort of even beyond what comes out of the transformation committee. But as you say, there's a lot of work going on now around membership requirements, around kind of uh, student athlete benefit models, around decision-making processes. And, uh, and the committee's working extremely hard. It's really committed to this work. And I think we'll come back with some really good recommendations as we move towards the end of the year and bring those to the Division I board. But I also think that this work isn't going to be done with the Transformation Committee at Division I or Two or Three. It's work that's going to have to take ongoing leadership, ongoing effort to continue to evolve the organization in the months to come. So I think there's going to be tremendous opportunity for a new president, not just to work on maybe implementation of some of the things that have already been done in the Transformation Committee, but to continue to impact some of these areas that will need ongoing work and effort as we kind of see how the landscape changes. And I think as we know, um, it's going to keep changing. Uh, we can't anticipate that there's going to be a lot of stability. Uh, and every organization is facing that. This is not unique to the NCAA. And so uh, so I think in a way for someone that likes to deal with change and likes to make a difference in an organization, it's a tremendous opportunity. Well, you you, you mentioned uh, just the, the amount of transformation that has come in. I know there's concerns, uh, rightfully so, for, for a lot of Division One schools out there and, and even below that, uh, that might be looking to move up into Division One. Uh, you know, as you get through this this transformation committee and, and you're getting into kind of some of the nitty gritty details, uh, what would you kind of say to some of those that, that are concerned? Well, I think there's a deep commitment to uh, ongoing broad participation uh, of student athletes and schools in the NCAA at all levels. And that it, as these discussions are going on, there's a lot of consideration in recognizing the impact these decisions have on individual schools, on conferences. Uh, and one of the 
best things about college athletics in this country is the diversities of types of institutions and, and uh, the ways in which they deliver education and college athletics in different ways. So I think there's a great appreciation for that and awareness of that and trying to figure out what are the models that continues to um, celebrate that and support that uh, while addressing some of the challenges that have come up in the last what, 5, 10, 15 years that we didn't face when we created the structure that we have now. And we haven't come to any conclusions or decisions about any of that, but I certainly understand why there's a kind of angst in the system as we go through these discussions about how things need to look going forward. So we're very sensitive to that and, and are, you know, taking those perspectives into consideration as we look at what division one might look like as we go forward. Perhaps you're perhaps the, the, the busiest person around college athletics. We, we, we thank you so much for your time. You got a, a lot of big work ahead, not only in the transformation committee, but, but on, on the board as well, as well as this big search uh, coming up to replace Mark Emmer as NCAA president, Dr. Linda Livingstone of Baylor university. Thank you so much for joining us. Happy to be with you, Brian. Thank you so much.